Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. And this is Trav. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of finding out that the world you live in is just another simulation. I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, Toto. (laughs) This is a follow-up to our first uh, Super Science episode, where we talked about a lot of different things and ended up on... um, Basically, living without any apparent need for sustenance. We're now moving on to the sec uh, to another big category: precision instrumentality, which is where you know, things are. You're able to do things far beyond what is commonly considered to be cap- possible to do. You know, uh, you know, ca- count all the grains of sand on a beach in a nanosecond. All right, so let's move on to Grey Goo Virtual Reality. Do you want to try to, uh, uh, for our listeners, uh, tell them what, what I'm trying to get to with this? Okay, for those of you who don't know what Grey Goo is, and it, and for, for those of you who are familiar with nanotechnology, the main thing that I hear a lot about, you know, across the board, various forums, why we don't want nanites is because of the concept of Grey Goo that it's a nanite that is just programmed to eat and reproduce. They're like mechanical microscopic tribbles. More like locusts. Yeah, yeah. They, they eat and then they, they make more themselves. And supposedly the big fear is, oh, the world will be covered in gray goo. It'll eat everything. And, you know, it'll just be like Bruce had said earlier before taping, a couple of feet, of, you know, the earth would be nothing but just have a couple of feet of this gray slime coating it. But what we mean by gray goo virtual reality is, let's say it does this and it consumes human life. It does not end it. It would like hold the essence of the human within the computers, within the nanites, and then give the personalities that comprise all these humans a reality in which to live and they could still do stuff and they can, you know, live out their lives if they wished. That's what it means. Sort of a, not a hive intelligence, because everybody, well, they would all be linked by the gray goo, but they would still have their own personalities and their own agendas and whatnot. Right. They'd have their own namespaces. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're using, continuing to use computer terms. So we're talking about not just something that destroys, but something that actually st- communicates amongst itself as well. And in other words, a, gen- a, a gigantic neural network that has the ability to uh, not only live for itself, but also to, um, and, and again, another Star Trek term, uh, to uh, understand the uniqueness, you know, and add it to itself. You know, the, in other words, a, a benevolent Borg. Yeah. Okay. But see, in the Borg, they basically take, you know, uh, all that uniqueness and it's subsumed to the needs of the collective. While in this case, 
it, the, the collective already has everything it needs. So it, there is, therefore, it says, okay, what can I do for you then? You know, how can, you know, by giving you what you want, by recreating, you know, in a, a virtual sense of what your life was before, then you're making life more interesting for, you know, for us all to interact with. So it, you now have an infinite variety, an infinite capacity to take the needs, the, the needs and desires of the people and animals and whatever it absorbs and breaks down and, and, and create whatever environments are, are wanted by the people whose, whose minds, you know, whose, who are rendered as AI now inside the gray goo wish. Yeah. You have the resources of an entire planet now, you know, available to you rather than just, you know, let's say whatever is on your desktop. It's it's not you looking out and, and doing Fallout 4. Now you can feel it. You, you know, everything it's all completely immersive reality. And you know, whatever whatever form that might take. And if you desire to uh, separate from the gray goo for some reason. Um, let's say you want to go to another planet, then it would also have the ability to reconstruct your body and put you into a vessel, you know, that probably looked just like you did before you went into the gray goo, and and you can go continue your life separate from it because it, it didn't need you in the first place. You know, you were a resource that it took into itself, but at the same time, is is that it's. It's not so. Uh, it's not a zero sum game where it's diminished somehow by you leaving, uh, or maybe it is, but it's willing to do so because you're going out to do something, and then you'll come back and with new experiences to share with the uh, with all the different beings, or you know whether they're a uh, people that were absorbed or whether they're actually AI that have generated within the gray goo matrix. You know, a possibly infinite number of life inside of that. Ooh, ooh, good thought experiment here real quick. And you could do this in any type of game, superhero, modern, urban fantasy, whatever. Somehow a visitor from that world comes to Earth. And through whatever circumstance, either through a benevolent meeting or through, let's say, you know, this, these nano scouts for lack of a better term and they would have to be people made of you know they back to their component parts because if you have like a nano shaped human they're not physical powerhouses they 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 can't lift things because it's the nanites you know holding a human form so let's say these nano scouts again we'll just use that for life they come to earth and Let's say they take the characters back to their world. It's like, okay, you want to try to strike up? Take us back. So they go back and they just find nothing, but it looks like a gray ocean world. No, that is the population of this planet. And the characters get subsumed into this planet. And they are now full of the, the entire sensorium, everything that has ever happened and is happening on this world. And then when they want to leave, the, the, the gray goo 
Virtual reality reconstitutes their bodies, sends them home. Reconstitutes their spaceships. Yeah, and and sends them back, and they now realize that there is this gray goo virtual reality out there that it just subsumed this planet and now is everything on this planet. Right, and maybe as you know, when they reconstruct their bodies, they they put in a little a little seed part of the gray goo. To say when you go back, if you want, if you you know, and you tell your people about what you experienced, if they want that experience, then you can give it to them. Yeah, there's just an, like a little ner- near a nerve cluster or something. It's just there, dormant. Yeah. Oh no, no, it, it it'd be a heck of a event, a campaign arc, and you could do it in a lot of different campaigns. But that would be kind of cool. Yeah. And, and we're not talking about a person who just suddenly just flows down into gray goo and is, you know, and, and is, is, is the entirety of the gray goo. No, no, no. It took a world of gray goo in order to create that environment we're talking about. Yeah. It would be a, just a beginning. Nobody would expect you to commit suicide, in essence, by doing that. You know, you, you're an intelligent being, and you, you, you have intelligence because of the physicality. Your brain is connected to your nerves, connected to your blood supply, and everything else like that. So if you suddenly, you know, but maybe there's a part of you that can start growing out and becoming bigger and bigger and, and eventually turn into the true gray goo virtual reality we're talking about. Uh, they kind of talked a little bit about this uh, in um, the, uh, oh, gee. Uh, it was actually, the book was called Shield by Poole Anderson, which was a straight-up science fiction story about a guy who'd invented a, a shield device, you know, like a backpack shield generator that everybody wanted to get their hands on. But they also had this android that was uh, uh, th- that they'd also created, and it was a little bit too, a little bit too capable. And they were very and they were very nervous about it. And, and by the end of the novel, you realize that that the the android is God. <laughs> Oh, okay. And and at one point he starts growing out from himself and starts turning into this gigantic thing that's you know uh, you know is is basically accessing you know the ecosystem to build itself bigger because it's it's getting ready to do something big in the world, but it's basically a vessel for God, you know, and um, and and, and yet yeah, and there's a part of it that breaks off and becomes the devil, yes. And I'm like, I'm reading it going, you know, you had an entirely different story over here, and then you brought this in. And when I was reading it the first time, I said, why is this in here? This is really kind of (laughs) weird. But I guess Paul Anderson was having fun. Sounded like he was trying to give some type of message about that. Just, yeah. Right. Well, it wasn't wasn't an artificial being. It was created um, and... And it became much more than itself, and all, and, and and of course, in the story, it became the ultimate, much more than itself, by essentially becoming the vessel for God. Okay. So, but I, but the rest of the story, which really I thought was in a way a lot more interesting, was about the ramifications if you had a backpack generator that could provide an impenetrable field of force around you, how that would change society, how it would change the world. People couldn't tell you what to do anymore. Yeah, there was an episode, I think, of uh, Stargate Atlantis where McKay found this force field badge 
And yeah, it was great. I'm invulnerable from harm. Wait, I can't get food in my mouth. Oh, dear God, I'm going to die. And so, yeah, it's uh, that whole be careful what you wish for. Yeah, it was great. McKay, McKay was walking into combat and, you know, the lasers are bouncing off, bullets are bouncing, and he didn't feel a thing until he realized that nothing can pass through, including nutrients, sustenance. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it force field that, yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing that when you mentioned that. That was the thing that came to mind about that. Yeah. So it, it raises a whole lot. It raised a whole lot of questions like, you know, okay, I'm protected from people harming me, but at the same time, I can't get rid of bad people. It's it's kind of like online griefers where they stand, you know, in, they stand in the doorway of your house and you can't leave your house because they won't move. Yeah. And you're like, what am I going to do now? They can't do anything to me, but by standing in the doorway, they're blocking me from going anywhere. So you know, in a way that that could also be a problem with these kinds of things where you could you could create uh, bad basically bad places where things were going on inside of which that nobody could do anything about because nobody could get through the shield. Mm. So it was it was kind of an interesting thought, you know, it, it was it was a very small book, actually, you know, but it raised a lot of interesting questions. Anyways, so back to the Grey Goo virtual reality. So. You know, the only place I've ever seen this done was in Greg Bear's Blood Music. Uh, I don't know any, if there's any other examples out there, uh, but that's a good place to go if you want to get an idea of what this kind of thing would be like and how everybody would be terrified of it because they're they're assuming that you know when they get dismantled by this, they're go, they're being annihilated. You know that that the, and and then. You know, and, and it's so it was so hard for the 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 intelligent part of the gray goo, you know, to make people understand that it didn't want to eliminate their uniqueness. It it it, uh, it was that was the most valuable thing it could think of. You know, it, it, anybody could do calculations, but you as a being as a unique being was far more valuable to it in that form than any other form that you could take. So it, it it you were safe. It was you know, it wouldn't hurt you, but at the same time, is it you know you you know maybe maybe is like some people just don't want to be enlightened. Well, I don't think it's that. I think it's just we're all raised that you know the mind and the body are linked, and you know we have the problem of when we get older, our mind starts go. Our bodies may be fine, but our minds start going, and it it's just it's still mine. The flesh, it, it is a part of me. Yeah, we say that, you know, you know, we are, our, our minds are who we are, our collective experiences and sensations and all that. But the body is still part of the package deal. And this Grey Goo virtual reality wants to come up and say, well, yeah, we'll subsume you, but you're still, you know, you'll be there. And it's like, it may feel within your virtual reality that I have a body and I will be able to, in this virtual reality, look and I will my senses will register that my hand is in front of my face. But unless you do something to my mind, I will know that that's not really my hand. I think that's what people would be afraid of is like, I still, I'm losing my body, which is still a part of me. It's something I've had all my life. It's something we humans have had since our race began. And you're going to take that physical element from me and replace it with electrical sensations. So it sounds like what's, what they're afraid of is being trapped inside the uncanny valley. 
Well, yeah. Well, remember in the Matrix when you had um. Yeah, it's twenty years, folks. No more spoiler alert. <laughs> when Cipher is there in the restaurant eating the steak, talking to Agent Smith as they are discussing how to, you know, betray Morpheus and you know get the the codes for Zion, and the part where he mentions about eating the steak. As he cuts into it, you see, you know, it's kind of medium rare there on the fork. And he says, my brain will tell me that it is tender and delicious. It's all electrical impulses, though. He's in the Matrix. His body is on backboard, the Nebuchadnezzar. And yeah, it's all electrical impulses. And I think because, yeah, our minds will tell us that it's real due to how the electrical impulses are registered. We will be without that actual physical body. The thing that we have had to deal with all our lives with the aching joints and the bumps and the bruises and the cuts and the, you know, occasional broken bone. And but it's something we've had and it's so intrinsic to us. And remember what um, Morpheus said to Neo. He says, you know what we all know somewhere, no matter what you, you look around and you still and you know that there's something terribly wrong with the world. How do you, you know, how do you know this? You don't know, but you know it. And so that's what they're afraid of. That they'll again, they'll be trapped inside the uncanny valley. Yeah. Yeah, well I can see that. I can see that fear, you know, and uh and, and you know, which is why uh all po- not every future is a good one for every person. <laughs> What are, what are some of the things that make us human that we classify the use of language? Well, we can't say the use of language because it's been determined that cetaceans have language, you know, dolphins and whales. Uh-huh. It's pretty much, and, and we can't say tool use because a chimpanzee will stick a stick into a termite nest and use it to get termites out and they'll eat them. So, quote unquote, lower life forms use tools. It is the recognition of self and the and the persistence of memory okay yeah yeah those are the things that's quote unquote separate us from the animal kingdom but let's face it bruce despite all of our civilization and our training and our technology humans are still animals we are still intrinsically linked to physical urges and and hunger thirst anger lust wrath I mean, you know, the, the seven deadly sins. All this, yeah, this is all. Yeah, yeah. So we we still are linked to the physical and the hormonal and all this. And for the thought of, okay, it's just going to be brought down to electrical impulses. You're not going to have a body. You'll just feel all that. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people that just, it's like, no, I want the legitimate real thing. I want to know you know, I, there are times I want to know when I cut my finger, I want to feel that pain. I want to see the blood. You know, it's just I want to know that that's there. Being inside of that will deprive me of that. You'll be lying to me if in your reality I cut my finger. I'll know it's just a waking dream. Uh huh. And just there are some people that will not want to sign on for that because we are so intrinsically linked to our physical forms. Right. And in the story that actually happens, the, the main, you know, the, not the main character, but the, um, uh, this one female character, you know, she, 
after going into the goo, she finally says, I, I, I want to go back. And she ends up just living a quiet life in an apartment, cooking, having her tea, growing her vegetables, you know, all surrounded, you know, by, by bare ground and beyond that, by the, this, the gray sheen of the gray goo that stretches on as far as the eye can see. But in her own, her little oasis, it's left her alone because that's what she wanted. Okay. Now, it reconstructed her body in order to do that, and whether you consider that body to be real after it reconstructed it, you know, who can say, but I, you know, it's, uh, we have to assume that it is, that it did what it, it promised to do. She certainly never showed any signs that she felt her body was unnatural. Mm. But she, I mean, she had to, you know, she she got hungry. She got, you know, she had to, you know, she could cut her thumb. She could bleed. She could, you know, uh, you know, she had to eat. She had to cook food for herself. She could appreciate the taste of the varying taste of the various vegetables, depending upon what kind of different, you know, uh, fertilizers she used. So, you know, she she was able to experience all the, the, those things, which, of course, the gray goo would have said, yeah, you could have experienced all that inside me, too. But she said, no, this is real, as you, as you claim. It's, it's, as I say, when, okay, in a game, when I know full well what damage is going to kill the NPC and I tell them you don't need to dot you don't need to roll it, it it I know your attack the minimum will kill it and my players will go oh no I want to roll the dice for the visceral thrill uh-huh. sure <laughs> that's why that's why they won't merge they want that visceral thrill even if it's oh crap I just broke my toe doesn't matter it's their toe that they broke it's not this thing lying to them saying yeah by the way you broke your toe say ow no, they still want that. That's part of the equation of being human, that the pain and the pleasure, the pleasure of eating that wonderful steak and the pain of, you know, getting cut, that's still part of the human condition. And to take that away, many people would feel that would deprive them of being human. They would no longer be themselves despite the collected experiences being saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have all the universe, but I'd rather just have my own little garden. Yeah. There are people like that. Yeah. Oh. All right. Moving on. Instant universal communication. This is a staple of science fiction from pretty much the beginning. People didn't really understand uh, the whole, uh, how long it took for, infor- for, for information to get from one place to another. On the earth, you know, it, it, it doesn't take hard, it takes, you know, like, fractions of a second for a message to go from one side of the earth to another but you get any any real distance in space and now we're talking minutes hours days even years for a message to go from one place to another which then brings in a lot of problems with storytelling because you know if you want to be able to communicate between two worlds that are light years apart then you know how do you do that uh, there was the invention, and I'm going back to D20 Future here. It is a PL9 device called an Ansible. A-N-S-I-B-L-E. Let me get the book real quick. Okay. Now, obviously, it is quite 
an expensive device at being progress level nine, which if you're, and you know how I roll here, people, I, I still use the progress levels from D20 Modern and Future. They work. Yeah, they're ver- I think it's a very good system. Ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay, Ansible, here we go, PL9. For those of you following along, page 139 in that particular book. The Ansible is a device that induces precise changes in the energy states of atomic nuclei without regard to distance or time. In effect, it permits instantaneous interstellar communication, voice, video, or data transfer to any other ship or station equipped with an Ansible. Much like a radio, the receiving station has to be attentive to a particular frequency, so two Ansible-equipped stations must have some prearranged communication protocols. An Ansible cannot pick up any other transmissions not intended for that specific frequency. So yeah, basically that's that would be my thing of instant universal communications. You could have you could have a galactic you you know you could have the Empire like you know the, the Galactic Empire like in the Star Wars canon. And you would have to have something like that just because, let's see, the Star Wars, and I ran a Star Wars campaign. Let's see, I'd say about maybe 60% of the Star Wars galaxy is inhabited. You have, you know, the unknown regions where the First Order went hiding for, you know, a decade or so or 20 years or whatever. And that is all relatively like sport. But the rest of that galaxy, they would need to have instantaneous communications in order, you know, for the, let's say the Galactic Empire to be sending out communications from like Coruscant out to the Outer Rim, where you'd have, you know, the hollow transceivers that you would see, uh, let's see, Empire Strikes Back, where Darth Vader was talking to all his generals, and as one ship would get destroyed, you'd see one of the images blink out. You would still need Ansible-level communications to be talking to people on the opposite side of the galaxy. Yeah, anytime he was talking to the Emperor. Yeah. Wherever he was in the galaxy, the Emperor had to be able to contact him immediately. And, and in real time. I mean, when, you know, they had a conversation. There was any sense that there was any delay in, in, in a response being uh, uh, understood from either side. And we know that the Emperor was probably on Coruscant. And they were, and, and he's he's off at Tatooine, you know, or somewhere nearby, which is, as they said, you know, the 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 butt end of the universe. Yeah, the outer rim territories. Yeah, it, it was quite a ways away from what I remember on the maps. Thousands of light years. Yeah, so you would have to have just that level of technology dealing with the states, the various energy states of atomic nuclei in order to link, and the Ansibles would all have to have the prearranged protocol, which would be, I mean, you could have, like, a couple hundred Ansibles, and if you just all put them on the same frequency, you have instantaneous communication all over. And like they said, voice, data, video, you know, just, you could send whole petabytes of data in an instant. So, yeah, that would be my best example that I know of of instant universal communications. Sure. And, and like I said, they, they used it, you know, as, a, as a, you know, a staple in science fiction for, you know, for, you know, 100 years where, you know, once once it was created, then, of course, you, you could have because you really can't have a true galactic civilization without it. Yeah, because if not, you would have to deal you would have to deal with either the ships producing you know, like sending quote-unquote mailbags. 
oh yeah, we're going to this world. Okay, then we'll send out you know our latest news, and it might get there three or four weeks. But so by the time you get, you're on planet you know Grobo, and oh yeah, we just got the latest delivery from planet Zaxxon. It's a month out of date. Right, and a, and a month out of date isn't too bad, you know. But what if it's years? I mean, no, you know, no world is going to be listening to any uh, directives coming from a central authority because by the time they get them, it, it's, it's, the information is worthless. Yeah. Why are we even part of them? Why are we even loyal to them? Why aren't we just, you know, loyal to the people that are nearer to us or even just to ourselves alone? You know, I mean, unless you have some kind of religious compunction where, you know, we are all part of the, you know, the, the great church. And therefore, even if we're separated by miles and, uh, you know, but by, by decades, even centuries of time, he says, we're still, you know, we're still whatever we are, you know, and but still, even within that, you're going to see a lot of, of changes because people are like, well, okay, where where the church is silent, you know, our culture speaks, and so you'd end up with all kinds of things happening as a result. But universal communication eliminates that because now there's immediate accountability anytime you deviate. Uh, or don't respond, or you know, when, whatever you do, you know, wars can be can be run effectively at the stellar level or at the interstellar level because you know you, f- you get the tactical information you need. I I do like that, and I forget what it Star Trek how they had the subspace radio. Right, there was lag. I mean, they would have instantaneous communications. You'd see, you know, Picard talking to one of the admirals, but. I remember the rules for Prime Directive, and they said it was like a 15-minute lag for every 500 light years. Mm-hmm. So if you were there, I mean, Earth to Vulcan, that was, you know, that's that's like maybe 10 light years. That's nothing. But if you're out, like, on the border of Tholian space, you know, the Romulan-Tholian area, which is, like, at the very edge of the galaxy, that's going to take hours for you to get a reply. It's going to be a one-way message and then you reply, and it's still going to be that same distance back. That's that's why I kind of had a problem with subspace radio, because yeah, I understand it's going through hyperspace. Yeah, I think essentially that's what subspace radio is. Yeah, it's subspace, not hyperspace, but essentially it's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. But still, I don't know how. And I and I've seen the maps of the Federation. I said I ran the Star Trek campaign a couple years back, and so I'm reading everything here, and I'm like. I don't know how you could feasibly run that big of a, uh, a a galactic entity or even, you know, a intersolar entity where information was still that slow, where you could have, where you needed people over in this part of the, the Federation and over here, and it took hours to get the message. You're going to end up coming up on a lot of dead planets and stuff and a lot of slaughtered people if that's the case. And so, yeah, it just that always did bug me, especially, you know, when you got older and you're like, wait a minute, if it takes that long to get the message, you know, how are they supposed to be protecting these worlds? That's why I always heard that there were wars all the time, because they couldn't rush and save their people. And, of course, the surrounding people, the Klingons, the Romulans, they, of course, had the same thing, but they also relied on that fact with the Federation. It's like, 
yeah, they're like 20,000 light years across. And so we know if we hit over here, they're not going to have that force coming anytime soon because of the fact that communications is so slow, even with subspace radio. Right. If you have a, a day to respond uh, before a response is going to happen and you're like a, you know, a, a, a like the Klingons or the, or, the, or the Federation, you can occupy a planet completely by in all important aspects and be entrenched. So yeah, so someone comes in and says, "Okay, get off our planet. We're not leaving. Make us," you know, and and they're ready to handle you because they brought their stuff with them. And uh, so yeah, if you had that long of a response, you, you, a lot of wars are gonna have to be massive things. And it's going to be all border skirmishes because you know full well, let's say the Klingons go into deep into Federation territory. We want to go, I mean, that's why you always heard frontier worlds were always contested. You know the full well that the Klingons are not going to go deep into Federation to do anything. That's why they had all these neutral zones because they knew if they tried to do an attack on a, a, a core world, that's a hell of a communication supply line to upkeep, and you're now deep into enemy territory. Right. You'd, ha you'd have to have some kind of forward base that you were operating out of. Right. And even if you had a base on the frontier, you know, your frontier being the Klingons, going very far into, you know, let's see, more than 500 light years, which were one of the hexes on the maps that I always see, yeah, you're not going to be going very far just because communication lines are hard to keep up. You won't be able to keep in contact again with, you know, Central Command or whatever. It just, yeah, that, that always did bug me about subspace radio, that there was still a lag, and then you look at how big the Federation is and go, wait a minute. Again, you know, you, you usually would just hand wave it. Oh, it's Star Trek. You just hand wave it. And you think about it when you're trying to run a campaign, you want that bare similitude, <laughs> and you just look at it all and go, no. Yeah, it's different when you're running a campaign because now you actually have to make that real, and you run, and you start seeing where the the joints are 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 are, are, are not seamless anymore. Yeah, uh, it's where an hour of, of delay can make a big difference when you have you know the when, you, when ships can literally you know jump into a star you know you know from a neighboring star system into you know another star system. That hour makes all the difference because they can, they they could go and stage in that nearby star system, and then when it comes to jumping, meanwhile you're waiting for a response from fifty, you know, star you know star systems away, and they're like, yeah, we're coming, we'll we'll be there, and you know, and and whatever they were trying to do, they've done, you know, either they, you know, they they move their border forward by taking over that star system and now they're backing it up by more, you know, by fleets and things like that. Or they've come in, done a quick grab, you know, I don't know, you know, uh, stolen a you know, major uh, supply of dilithium, maybe destroyed a resource that, that the other side found very valuable. But now, you know, they we can't have it. You don't get to have it either. And so they come in and do uh, they do a, a, a destruction raid. I mean, there's lots of reasons to you know to, to engage in military aspects, or maybe you're just coming in to abduct people. You know, it's in a way that was uh, kind of like the problem in the incursion because Earth is nowhere near the rest of their their civilization.
Yeah, that's all out in the other part of uh, and I did the research because I used incursion for the 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 Bureau Thirteen. What you call the Gnomes in Space campaign, which we just wrapped up that arc. It was all out in the rest of Earth's spiral arm, and that's remember the Orion Cygnus arm is like what's it three thousand light years wide by twenty thousand light years long by like a thousand deep. That's a lot of real estate, son. And your and and the communications Earth was considered a backwater planet, protected by that Enchanty security drone until 1945, when first atomic bomb was dropped. First time a nuke was detonated. Yeah, right. And they said, okay, well they're able to handle themselves now and drop the protection. So, but I mean, but, but when the, the these you know super science aliens show up, they look around, and they say. There's nothing here we want. I mean, other than maybe some interesting bits of culture, you know, music or something like that. What we can really use is we can use all those nicely, uh, pr- uh, nicely trainable brains. And so they came in and grabbed people and used them as slaves out there in the seedier parts of the galaxy. Because ultimately, you know, the one thing that you know you uh, uh, is the hardest thing to do is to get somebody else to do something for you. You know, you can make all the devices in the world, but you still have to do it yourself. So getting somebody to do something for you by either uh, sla- enslaving somebody or, or, or making your own slaves by creating a robot or something, that's, you know, that's the one thing that's the hardest thing to do, you know, uh, as far as a, a civilization is concerned. That provides the ultimate in leisure, because now you have somebody to handle all the parts you don't want to handle yourself. Mm-hmm. So Earth's, Earthlings were very valuable in that sense. What they didn't count on was the fact is it was also the Bureau 13 world, and there were a number of organizations there who didn't take kindly to you know people coming in doing snatches and grabs of, of, of Earth, Earth humans. I don't know whether we were just especially valuable in that regard or whether there wasn't that many uh, uh, habitable worlds out in our section, but they always seem to keep coming back. Yeah, they can't. We're coming back for like over 45 years because it was uh, like 1940. It was a couple years after they found the drone was gone is that's when, hey, look, let's start snatching them. And then in the mid-90s is when... Humans got there, Dan. So yeah, about 45, 50 years. I figure what happened was it was an accidental thing where they somebody decided to jump to a set of coordinates and it turned out to be Earth. And finding another set of coordinates, you know, nearby that actually matched up to a a, a, a good, you know, intelligent civilization was actually pretty hard to do. And so they say, well, there's we got we know there's one spot out there where there's good there's good people. Well, there's there's good product to be acquired, so they would sell that information to all the other slavers, and everybody used the same location, the same port, so to speak, because it was a lot easier to do that than to put the effort in to try to expand your market with new pla- new sources of of uh, product. Yeah. But anyways, instantaneous you know, universal communication is something that. As I said, it's a staple in a lot of science fiction, but it's also missing from a lot of science fiction because it it creates that those areas of uncertainty that 
are bad for civilization, but really good for drama. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, that's it. That's our four things that we were going to talk about this time. We hope that uh, you can see where these kinds of things could really are, are really good examples of super science, not just advanced science. But as Trav was talking about, stuff that falls into the PL9, even PL10 range of, uh, uh, of science. Of progress levels. Or just calling it God tech would be... Yeah. 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 Clo- you know, close to or uh, equal to God tech. And uh, it's, there's no reason to think that if, if you run a science fiction type campaign that they may not run into it and something like that. It could be a remnant of a civilization that has, you know, disappeared, you know, uh, more than millennia ago, even millions of years ago, where the people involved, you know, became beings of total intelligence and traveled off to unknown realms, and, but they still left you know, their technology behind and people got their hands on it and handed it around. Or it could be something where something has evolved to that and that's its current state, like the gray goo. Or, yes. You know, or it could be people like, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, like the Q, like the Q continuum. Yeah, oh, yeah. Where, yeah. you know, they they just seem to like messing with humans. <laughs> I don't know why, you know, but they do, you know, and and uh, I never was very satisfied with their thing where they had the war. You know, it says, we've all been the mailbox. <laughs> we've all been the dog. When they're, but because uh, it was, they were saying, maybe it's time for us to, you know, move on and go to uh, uh, evolve to the next level of consciousness and, and leave these, these uh, flesh-bound intelligence behind to fend for themselves oh the episode with um the other q corbin bernson that's it well they had a whole bunch of them actually because it was the war with the q continuum okay all right but it was about this one guy who who basically you know published the the uh you know the the one story that that could not be published he was banned for it he basically was thrown out of their society which was time to die Question mark. <laughs> okay. For people yeah. who've lived millions of years, that's a that can that that that's, might be the you know the most awful thing that you could say because some people would say that I've lived a million years. How could I stop now? Yeah. And he his answer was maybe living like maybe living another million years exactly the way we have been living isn't worth it. Maybe there's another choice. So that's where they had to get to by the end of that that particular adventure. Uh, it was a two-parter oh, <laughs> episode. Okay. I was going to say, not the episode, but that particular arc. Yeah. And I forget what actually happened, whether they all, whether the majority of them left or and still left a few behind who wanted to still mess. The younger members of the, uh, of the Q continuum, like, well, like John Delancey's Q, I, I've forgotten. It's been a, it's been a long time. You know, when you're dealing with this kind of level of super science, you know, you got to ask yourself, why is it playing with us? Is it because it likes us or is it because it hates us? Like in uh, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, where, wow. where the AI had no other reason in, uh, to exist than to torment the few humans that remained because they they given it a purpose, but it wasn't a good enough one. Oh, okay. 
All right. Anyways, thanks everybody for listening. We hope that uh, we hope that you uh, will use some of these in, at some point in your campaigns, whether they come to visit or whether you go and be, and and find this great super science uh, civilization out there to join. But whatever you do, we hope you make your uh, campaigns awesome because this is the kind of thing that can do it. And we'll have more for you next week. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. Is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.